So our first speaker today is the director of the Centers for Health and Aging, which is part of where the GEC is located. Um, Dr. Stephen Bartels is professor of psychiatry and of community and family medicine and director of the Dartmouth Centers for Health and Aging, which is in Sintera in Lebanon. Dr. Bartels is the Herman O. West Professor of Geriatrics, Professor of Psychiatry and Community and Family Medicine, and of the Dartmouth Institute at Dartmouth at Geisel School of Medicine. He's the director of the Center for Aging Research, which is going to have a name change shortly. <laughs> and uh, his research interests include health promotion, prevention, and health management in older adults with mental disorders, self-management of chronic illness, integration of mental health and primary care, telehealth, Medicaid and Medicare costs of medical and mental disorders in older adults, and evidence-based geriatric medicine. Dr. Bartels. So can people hear me okay? Good, great. So first I just want to welcome everybody here. You know, this is really a really important topic area and the speakers you're going to hear from are really terrific. Um, and I do want to thank uh, first, um, you know, the people who organized this, uh, Laura Wise, who, who runs our Geriatric Education Center, and the organizing committee, uh, Ellen Flaherty, Deb Hastings, uh, Brenda Jordan, Justin Montgomery, and Bernie Seifert. And also want to just uh, let you know the speakers you're going to hear from are really uh, have terrific perspectives. You're going to hear from a couple, couple of really outstanding geriatricians, uh, Lisa Fermansky and, and uh, also uh, uh, Margot Krasnoff, and then you're going to hear from uh, an uh, a, uh, expert in pharmaceutical issues with respect to um, substance abuse who's from the University from Colorado, who's flown in from Denver just, just yesterday. Uh, and then uh, also a, a representative from the Attorney General's office, James Brown. So really in for a terrific program. Um, and uh, thank you for being here and uh, being part of this. So what I'm going to do is give a quick overview of the field of uh, substance use disorders in older adults and to talk a little bit about both uh, medication misuse and alcohol misuse and talk about um, several things. First of all, what we're looking at in terms of the baby boomer changes and cohorts that we're going to be looking at that the current group of older adults who are substance users uh, who have challenges in that area are going to look different in, in the next uh, decade or so the nature and extent of the problem, uh, the risks, and what have been arguably described as the benefits of alcohol use. We'll talk a little bit about that. Talk about lifetime patterns, uh, screening approaches, and then spend a bit of time quickly going over brief alcohol interventions and hopefully go over that enough so you'll feel comfortable with uh, some of the skills that are in that, and then finish up with uh, treatment. So that's what we're going to be doing. So. You know all about the demographic uh, kind of imperative we're looking at. What you may not know, for those of you working in New Hampshire, is that uh, New Hampshire is actually second in the nation in the proportion of people who are 85 and older. So we have a uniquely older population, and it's really uh, a significant challenge that has definitely gotten the attention of um, people down in Health and Human Services and down in the state legislature. And Vermont also is a pretty old, it's a rapidly aging group. Uh, and as you know, people age 85 are the fastest growing group. Um, but what's most important really to some extent with this topic is that we're looking at this wave of baby boomers that are coming down the pike. And as you might, uh, might know and think when you think about it, is the current group of older adults grew up at a time when talking about alcohol use or 
or engaging in illicit drug use was really something that was uh, highly stigmatized um, and for which there are a fair amount of uh, teetotalers, people who are abstinent in the current generation. Then you can think about the generation that grew up in the 60s, the era of, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, and uh, we're looking at a bit of a change in terms of attitudes about, uh, about particularly illicit drugs, and we'll talk a bit about that also. So things are going to change, um, and what we're thinking about in terms of the challenges are only going to be magnified in the coming generation for which um, so-called recreational use of uh, alcohol and certainly of drugs is much more acceptable. And, and even in our neighboring uh, Portland, Maine, they just uh, legalized a marijuana, you know, in small amounts. And so we're going to be looking at some, I think, perhaps troubling, uh, at least in my opinion, trends that are going to happen for older adults. There are many, perhaps, benefits to legalization, but uh, we won't get into that argument here. So, so what's the extent of the problem um, for older adults? Well, the most common uh, addiction remains uh, nicotine use. Uh, even in older adults. But that's quickly followed by alcohol use uh, disorders, and particularly alcohol misuse. And then, and then um, psychoactive drugs are third on the list. Way down on the list are, again, this group of illicit or illegal drugs. But as I mentioned, that's changing, um, particularly in retirement communities. Um, uh, in colleagues I talked to in, uh, who work in Florida, they're seeing significant increases in the use of particularly marijuana and, and even cocaine. And some of that happens to be in, also involved in unsafe sex in senior retirement communities. So some of the same things you're hearing about in the younger cohort are beginning to infiltrate into, into the older uh, group pop population. So here's the first uh, question for you. Um, so what percentage of older adults are uh, using uh, psychoactive medications with abuse potential. Any thoughts is uh, how many people think 10%? Uh, okay, one. How about 25%? Uh, More hands, okay. 50%? Wow, okay. 75%, okay. So um, it's, actually, uh, it's actually one in f at least one in four, and that's probably a conservative, about 25%. But if you think about that, that's um, that's a lot, right? I mean, one in four people on psychoactive medications. First of all, one in four older adults being on psychoactive medications by itself is, is, is significant. And actually, it's higher than that because they don't all have um, abuse potential. So that's a lot if you think about it. Um, and uh, you know, 11% of women over, women over age 60 um, misuse prescription medications, we think. Um, and then uh, if you think about uh, the individuals who are affected by medication misuse, uh, adversely effective, we're looking at anywhere from 18 to 41% or so. So this is a, this is a problem, and, and we're talking about this in part because this is kind of the equivalent to, in younger adults, the problem of illicit drug use. For, so for older adults, it's not really about, at least right now, marijuana and cocaine and heroin. It's more about uh, other agents that are, that are generally prescribed. Um, and so that's what we're really looking at. And this actually is, um, is a growing phenomenon. So if you look at, uh, if you look at the increases that are occurring, that uh, non-medical use of psychoactive uh, prescription drugs uh, is, uh, is predicted to, to, uh, to double uh, over the next uh, decade or so. 
Um, and uh, this is associated with lots of adverse downhill uh, effects. Yes? What is actually considered psychoactive prescription? Oh, we'll get to that in a second. Oh. I'll be talking about that. So we're really talking about uh, uh, medications that are uh, used for, um, for sleep, uh, for anxiety, and for pain, um, all of which affect kind of psychological status in one way or the other. And we'll get to, get to the detail of the list of that in a second. But thanks for asking. And feel free to interrupt me if I'm not being clear or you have questions. Um, so why is this important? Well, one of the things we know is that people who are older who are on psychoactive medications are much more vulnerable to the side effects that can happen, including falls and confusion and drug-drug interactions, delirium, a whole host of things that actually end up placing people at great risk and in emergency rooms. And so uh, the um, numbers of visits you can see there that are estimated, um, which is uh, increasing since uh, uh, the, in looking at this over the years, uh, that uh, emergency room visits for psychoactive drug complications has just skyrocketed. So that's, that's one phenomenon. It's a growing problem and it's, and it's getting, getting worse. So here's in part of the response to your question, but here's a question with a question. Um, what type of psychoactive medication, if there's a skyrocketing admission to emergency rooms for psychoactive medications in older adults, which one of these is the biggest culprit? Is it antidepressants? Is it sedative tranquilizers, um, benzodiazepines or sleepers? Is it pain relievers is it, or is it stimulants? Which one of these is the uh, most uh, likely culprit in terms of the greatest rate of emergency room uh, department visits? Uh, how many for antidepressants? Just one or two, okay. How about sedatives or tranquilizers? Lots for that, okay. How about pain medications, narcotics, okay. And then thirds, uh, lastly, stimulants? Nobody for stimulants. So. Yeah, it actually is uh, the most frequent cause uh, has to do with, uh, with pain medications. Um, uh, you can see that 43% are, are due to uh, pain relievers, but uh, quickly after that, for those of you who raised your hands around anxiety medications and sedative hypnotics, it's, it's a close second uh, at about 32% uh, or so, and the antidepressants are last on that list, around 8% or 9%. So, uh, so these medications are, um, again, significantly associated with, uh, with complications that are sometimes are life-threatening, and we'll get into that in a second. So in terms of, uh, in terms of what happens and, you know, what is the consequence of these? Well, um, almost 40% uh, end up getting admitted to the hospital. And that's important, obviously, because that's really expensive and people don't want to be in the hospital and shouldn't be there. Uh, who uh, have avoidable uh, complications. So, so this is a lot of people, um, and it's a lot of hospitalizations due to psychoactive medications that are prescribed. And um, unfortunately, either uh, these are side effects uh, to the medications prescribed that are um, unanticipated and not, the, not due to the individual's misuse of the medication, but also sometimes used, sometimes due to misuse, and we'll define that in a minute or so. So adverse, what are called adverse drug events are a big deal uh, in older adults, uh, what are called ADEs. Um, and uh, uh, adverse drug events have been, there's a number of different estimates for the, for the rates of these, but you can see here that um, 
Ad hospital admissions for adverse drug events uh, range from anywhere from 10 to 17 percent. And it's thought that, uh, that one in, uh, two in five of these, about 40 percent, are totally preventable and unnecessary. So we recognize that when we prescribe medications to older adults, and the more medications that are prescribed, the more likely you are to have an adverse drug event. So you can see that the risk skyrockets from uh, when you have two medications, the risk is about 13 percent of people. You get to five medications, it's 38 percent. Seven plus medications, it's as high as 82 percent. Now, all those people aren't getting hospitalized. Don't get me wrong on this. But an, an adverse drug events really are a range of things that, uh, that uh, include side effects, include also significant complications. So it's only a matter of your, your uh, kind of, uh, if you remember way back when, uh, when you studied uh, permutations or combinations, you know, when you start to get this multiplicative event around two things versus four things versus eight things, suddenly you've got a massive number of drug-drug interactions that are potentially possible. So it's only a matter of math that polypharmacy results in significant risk. And as you all know, sometimes it's necessary. People who have multiple chronic illnesses, when you get to 85, that often happens, need uh, you know, parsimonious and careful, thoughtful uh, prescriptions that address major, ma uh, major illnesses. However, most of what uh, my colleagues who are geriatricians uh, sitting over on the table around uh, here and who are about to hear from, a lot of what they do is think very carefully about people that they see that they consult on. Uh, and uh, one of the most important things that uh, often geriatricians do is take people off of medications that are not indicated and think very carefully about function and whether or not it's really critical to get that, to get that particular symptom treated and there are other ways to do it. And so we need to think more carefully about that because um, there are mortalities associated with, uh, uh, with ADEs, uh, with adverse drug uh, events. And certainly uh, falls are a big deal in terms of adverse drug events. It's one of the major causes of falls or complications uh, associated with uh, prescribed medications. Again, not always taken incorrectly, sometimes iatrogenic or due to the prescriber, but unfortunately not infrequently due to taking medication not as prescribed also. So that's what we mean by medication misuse or abuse. Um, we're not talking about non-adherence. We're not talking about somebody who's older who forgets to take their dose. That's, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's a drug adherence problem, and, and uh, there are lots of ways, and uh, we have an expert in our audience here you know, who's going to be speaking, but people uh, who are experts in geriatric uh, pharmacology and, and also in, uh, in uh, pharmaceutical approaches to helping people with adherence, um, uh, have studied lots of different ways to help people to be adherent to a cognitive impairment, including assistive devices and all sorts of things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who, um, who uh, on their own, um, take a dose that's more than prescribed, double up on a pain medication or a sleeping medication or some other agent because they think it'll be helpful. Or taking the medication longer than prescribed, they were told to take it only uh, for uh, two weeks or on an as-needed basis every other day and they're taking it, you know, every day for a month if they can find it. And sometimes that's associated with pharma, for doctor shopping and, and uh, seeking or finding medications from others. Or using it for other purposes than prescribed. Um, saying, gee, you know, my friend told me this is really good for X and so they're taking X, uh, you know, when it really wasn't 
prescribed by the physician. Now, another is uh, taking it in conjunction with contraindicated medications or alcohol. And so this doesn't mean when you tell somebody, older adults, you know, you really don't need to take, you shouldn't take this with alcohol. This is actually contraindicated. Sometimes they'll, sometimes, uh, but an, you need to be really clear about it because sometimes what you'll get is, well, I don't take it with alcohol, I take it with water. Um, so, uh, no, no, it's about drinking while you're on this medication. It's not good. Um, and then skipping or hoarding dosages um, is, is part of that. Um, now, obviously there's sometimes ways in which we can think about uh, the practitioner and their uh, kind of responsibility for this, and we're not really focusing specifically on that right now, but, um, but clearly uh, there are off-label uh, uses of medications that aren't necessarily acceptable that people sometimes are involved in doing based because they think it's helpful and it really isn't uh, evidence-based or increasing dosages beyond what really is appropriate or most importantly failing to monitor. And so uh, one of the things that we know very well is that um, people placed on psychoactive medications, for example, antidepressants or uh, or, or pain medications, that one of the most important things to do is not just prescribing that, but following up um, and checking in with people. So, for example, the reason why so much, uh, so many of the treatments for depression don't work very well is that within, if you don't check with that person in two weeks, you won't find out the majority of older adults discontinue that antidepressant medication because it's, they're not tolerating it well or they don't feel like it's working or whatever. So good integrated collaborative care uh, approaches to depression management, for example, is in fact touching base with that person within two weeks and then subsequently within six weeks and following an algorithm. And it doesn't need to be the doctor. It clearly can definitely be a, a, a care manager or whatever, but monitoring is really important and asking people. Um, now, it's also the case that, that uh, if you're thinking about the criteria, it's, not, it's often the case not just that the person is taking more than uh, is uh, necessary, but it really becomes a specific concern when it's associated with declining function, when it's actually affecting functioning. Um, and using in risky situations, you know, uh, which means driving or other sorts of uh, situations or when you're at risk for falls. And then using despite adverse consequences. I mean, this begins to start to sound more like the types of dependence or abuse that you're familiar with in terms of younger adults, you know. Um, uh, continuing to drink or continuing to use drugs despite the fact that you're losing all your social supports, you're having medical complications. So when you start to see both taking more than is necessary or prescribed or taking for other indications and it's beginning to affect function, that's what we call medication misuse. Now, dependence, by the way, is also important, um, uh, particularly uh, with respect to the uh, opioid analgesics and pain medications where uh, you know, people who are older can absolutely develop a tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. And again, um, it's really important to recognize, and, I, and I'm sure you know this, that we're not talking about people who are in palliative care who have very severe chronic uh, and, and significant pain due to metastatic cancer or some other condition. Uh, you know, fully treating that pain is really, really important. And uh, we don't want to confuse uh, the message by suggesting that people who are on narcotics or on opioid analgesics for very legitimate reasons uh, for severe pain, intractable pain, shouldn't be on them. They absolutely should be. But there still is 
absolutely a, a misuse of these medications that is flourishing and, and increasing. And, and that's the group we're talking about for which the prescription should be for a short period of time for time limited uh, reason and for which that person is continuing to take it and take more and become dependent on it. That's not a good thing. So, so what are some of the risk factors for medication misuse and, and abuse among older adults? Um, that's a polling question, but there's no poll question. So you can think for a second about what that is. Um, I left out the ABCs, I guess. So the greatest use, the greatest um, group that seems to have the profile for medication misuse and abuse um, tends to be more uh, common among women tends to be associated with those individuals who are socially isolated. And that only makes sense. We know that social support and social networks are one of the best and most important things that help people as they age with chronic pain or chronic disability. And if you don't have that, you may start turning to pharmacological approaches that really aren't appropriate. Certainly having a history of substance abuse um, or a history of, uh, of a, a major mental health problems in the past um, so we know that people who have had the depression or have had significant anxiety or uh, earlier uh, psychiatric issues do have a higher likelihood of having a medication misuse or abuse. And then clearly, um, having been exposed, having been treated by a physician for some sort of pain condition and having been given a narcotic or given an agent in the past, I mean, that obviously just stands to reasons. Not to say that it shouldn't be done, but this is kind of the most common profile or some of the features. Now, unfortunately, the way to detect or, or identify whether somebody is actually having significant medication-related problems due to misuse or abuse is, pretty, is a pretty big list, a pretty big shopping list. And so you could look at this list here and you could think about uh, many things that might be uh, culpable here. but. The most important thing to think about is before one starts to treat, for example, insomnia, or before you start to treat depression, or before you start to treat incontinence, think about whether or not the medications the people, that individual's on, might in fact be the culprit. So any of these things, confusion, depression, certainly delirium, um, and uh, uh, as sleeping disorders, um, movement disorders sometimes, certainly falls, incontinence, weakness, loss of appetite, um, and uh, going from having a clear speech to slurred speech, yes, it could be a TIA, a transient ischemic attack, yes, it could be a stroke, and yes, it could be that the person is developing a, pharma, a, a adverse uh, effect, uh, side effect to, to medications that are causing them to slur their speech. So think about the medication list whenever you're assessing an older adult who's had a change in status function. So among some of the agents to most worry about um, that, are, that, are, uh, that are worth uh, thinking about that are among the, the major concerns are certainly um, anti-anxiety uh, medications, tranquilizers, benzodiazepines, and barbiturates. So among the biggest and most common uh, uh, complication uh, complicator is, are the, the sleep medications and, the, and the, the medications for anxiety and and they're widely prescribed it isn't to say they shouldn't be prescribed or they shouldn't be prescribed but they're really intended to be prescribed for brief periods not chronically so people shouldn't be on high dose uh, 
uh, benzodiazepines and hopefully not long-acting benzodiazepines, you know, medications that stick around in your bloodstream a long time are really can be a problem for older adults because they build up and then result in confusion and falls. And then certainly the opioid uh, agents, as we mentioned, are, are again, uh, appropriate for short-term or appropriate for palliative care, uh, but not appropriate for long-term management of complicated, uh, of, of somebody who has multiple, uh, you know, pain uh, concerns. Uh, so codeine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, um, aparidine, those sorts of agents are, uh, are ones to be concerned about. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's not infrequently that you'll see that individuals who are on these medications also have problems with alcohol misuse. So I uh, had the uh, experience in the past year of going to a big reception in New York for uh, a major uh, tribute to somebody. and. Uh, when a, an individual found out I was a geriatric psychiatrist, I suddenly started hearing about all this person's, who was actually hosting the event, uh, uh, all these person's problems with their back pain. And she then started listing off three or four, you know, uh, opioid nar narcotic analgesics she was on, as well as injections she was getting. And, she and at the time, she was holding a martini and beginning to slur her speech. It was really worrisome. You know, I, I, all I could do was listen and just, just think about, my gosh, you know, this individual, who's prescribing all these medications? She clearly has intractable back pain and is very disabled by it, but this is not a solution. So, and of course, she was telling me about all the different doctors she'd been to to get help, which is we call doctor shopping. Uh, so, so anyway, so these are, these are not unimportant uh, kind of things that can happen. So um, prescribed benzodiazepines. Um, are really important. Older patients are prescribed more benzodiazepines than any other group. A number of years ago, when uh, before uh, SSRIs, uh, you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, agents like Prozac and others, are, were widely prescribed. We did a study in managed care and managed care uh, plan for, in, for uh, looking at primary care treatment of depression. And what we found was that. Older adults uh, were more likely to be prescribed, four times more likely than, than younger adults to be prescribed benzodiazepines as the only treatment for depression, which is totally wrong. You know, I mean, that's not what you use. So, so not quite sure why that is, except that um, I think the, the, the common uh, correlate of depression for older adults tends to be sleep problems, and so people think that they're helping the person first for sleep, maybe that'll help their depression, but suffice it to say benzodiazepines are a real problem um, in older adults, and they should be used for short-term use. They're not intended to be long-term treatments. So if you see somebody who's been on a benzodiazepine um, for, uh, you know, months, you should be worried in an older adult. For a couple of weeks due to sleep problems or due to a post-operative period or due to hip, hip trans you know, a, a hip replacement or something like that to help, that's fine. But that's not long-term use, no, uh, certainly not, and uh, uh, falls and confusion uh, a common uh, problem. So if you look at the prescribing uh, use, uh, prescribing patterns and use for benzodiazepines, again, um, it's the case that uh, largely used for insomnia and for anxiety, um, widely prescribed, uh, particularly in primary care. But if you, if you look at, a, at a kind of longitudinally, you look at, well, what happens if people who are on these benzodiazepines, some stop and some continue? Do the people who stop them do worse and start having problems with sleep? Now, this is not a randomized trial. This is a naturalistic, observational 
kind of study that was done. But those who discontinued the benzodiazepines, who were prescribed them initially in primary care, after two months, the people who were off of them were not, were not sleeping any better or any worse than the people who were continuing to be on them. So that seems to suggest that over the long run, that long-term long use um, doesn't have any advantage over taking somebody off. And sometimes it's a matter of cycling people on and off that may be better if they're really having trouble with sleep. But infrequent use, PRN use, usually okay. But again, it's this long-term use that's a real problem and doesn't seem to work. And then uh, among this group in this observational study who continued, a number of people ended up getting uh, dependent on the drugs. So uh, uh, apologies to any fans of Rush Limbaugh in the crowd, uh, but uh, um, certainly uh, use uh, to, for pain and, and uh, some of the opioid analgesics are, are a, real, uh, a real problem in terms of, uh, in the, in terms of this, in terms of older adults. And, and why is that? Well. We know that they're prescribed, again, sometimes inappropriately for general, uh, general use, but medically, um, there's a number of things that happen as you get older with respect to particularly these type of agents. First of all, you know, there's differences in terms of the way that they're absorbed in the GI tract. Certainly the way they're metabolized, so the same dose in a younger person is going to be a higher blood level in an older adult, um, so clearance isn't as good. And, and we think also that uh, the brain is, and other you know, organs, but certainly the brain is more sensitive to these drugs as you get older, just not as uh, resilient in terms of the, the sensitivity. So you've got both higher blood levels and greater sensitivity um, leading to problems that can occur uh, with respect to these medications. Um, and, uh, and certainly um, in older adults, you know, some of the long-term pain, long-acting medications um, may not be appropriate uh, for some individuals because they're already having trouble clearing the medication and, and metabolizing it. So it can actually end up, you know, building up in the bloodstream over a period of time. So it needs to be really thoughtful around those sorts of agents. And again, sedation, confusion, and even respiratory depression, um, you know, where people don't, are unable to, uh, to, to breathe as well, um, you know, can happen for these medications. So again, um, not to suggest that these medications aren't important for uh, palliative care for severe pain, but uh, overused, um, yes, and dangerous, um, and certainly a direct-to-consumer uh, advertising of Oxycontin is not something we usually recommend, um, even though the thumbs up uh, looks, uh, looks favorable. So, uh, so that's a very quick tour through a medication misuse, and I'm going to shift gears and talk about, um, begin to talk about a, a alcohol and uh, misuse. But before I do that, the two do go together. Um, that uh, uh, that uh, when you look at the combined uh, alcohol and medica medication misuse uh, issue, that it's thought around one in, one in five individuals have uh, interactions with medications with alcohol. So the two do go together. Uh, and, uh, and are associated with drug-drug interactions uh, that end up with people going to emergency rooms. So again, this issue of being on pain medications or sleep medications, anti-anxiety medications, and then on top of that, drinking generally is, and even in small amounts, generally is not a good idea for older people. And we'll get to that in a, in a, in a, in a while, why it's so important for older adults. So among the, the biggest drug-drug uh, interactions just to think about uh, are 
pretty much most of them, right, that we went over already. We're talking about benzodiazepines, sedatives, opioid analgesics, um, the, the kind of narcotic medications, uh, anticonvulsants, some psychotropic agents, some antidepressants, um, uh, and uh, certainly some barbiturates. So again, most of the drugs are, have, interact with alcohol. So what about alcohol use in older adults? And so, you know, what's, you know, if people get older, gee, what, what's the problem? You know, uh, why not uh, let that retired person enjoy their, their final years and, and, uh, and have a, a you know, positive experience uh, if they want with, uh, uh, with uh, drinking? And, and, and on top of that, it's so good for you. Um, you know, it, it, uh, alcohol uh, uh, decreases, uh, you know, heart disease uh, uh, and uh, possibly, uh, you know, may have some impact on, on kind of arterial flow in the brain, so possibly good for neurogenerative diseases and stroke, um, and, uh, and particularly low to moderate uh, daily use has been uh, described. And then, of course, um, you know, if you're a little anxious and you're a little lonely, what's the harm of having a few drinks before you get together with the uh, uh, with, the, with your peers uh, to, for that bingo game or whatever you're going to be doing. Well, one of the problems is, um, you know, particularly most of this is around, uh, around the use of red wine. It's not about beer or bourbon. Uh, it's mostly around red wine due to some of the agents that are in that. Now think about, think about the people who tend to have a glass of red wine. Um, and think about whether those, that kind of economic strata are the ones that also have pretty good health care and have a lower exposure to, uh, to, to environmental toxins or to uh, stress of, of uh, really difficult work situations or uh, exposures to, uh, to medical illnesses that uh, aren't treated well, chronic illnesses that, uh, for which they don't have a physician who's treating them. I would suggest that those probably aren't the red wine drinkers. Um, and so there are, even though there's been controls for this, so when I get asked this question, you know, about, you know, gee, isn't it a good idea to have a glass of red wine, um, or two or three, um, uh, you know, uh, there, there is some arguments that people, epidemiological large samples, again, but think about the group, think about what's called a sample selection or confound, think about the fact that people who drink red wine also probably exercise a little more. And so, and there's no clinical trials. No one's ever done a randomized trial of putting somebody on red wine for 20 years as opposed to bourbon and, or no red wine. So think about that. And also what I like to, when, when I'm asked about this, I like to say, well, you know, if you've got a choice in terms of your mental acuity and your heart between sitting around drinking a glass of red wine and doing crossword puzzles or going for a walk, go for the walk. I mean, the. the the, the evidence around cardiovascular health and, uh, and uh, even cognitive health and physical activity is just so strong. And I would suggest that the red wine thing is, uh, is, is weaker. Uh, and so that's, that's my advice. But not to say that people can't have moderate red wine uh, on occasion, or, but it's not really the remedy that uh, sometimes people misinterpret the epidemiological data. It's really attractive. You know, it'd be great if uh, red wine and hamburgers and, uh, and ice cream was really uh, connected with good health, but we, we, we kind of think probably not. So um, why is alcohol a problem for older adults? What, what's wrong with a few drinks? Um, well, there are, there are certainly, certainly physiological reasons that are not uh, trivial. First of all, for a given dose, for a given four ounces 
of alcohol or six ounces. There's a higher blood alcohol content, blood alcohol level, in a 70-year-old than a 20-year-old. There just is. So the same dose causes higher blood alcohol. And at a given blood alcohol level, the impairment that a person experiences in general when you're 70 is different than when you're 25. Um, and uh, the end organs, the brain, the neurological system is just more sensitive. Um, uh, and, and finally, there's the interaction that occurs. It just so happens when you're older, you tend to have, be more likely to have than the 25-year-old congestive heart failure, diabetes, and COPD, and other sorts of things. And you tend not to be on medications treating all those things. So you put that all together, um, there is a reason to be particularly concerned or more concerned about alcohol use even in moderate amounts than uh, in, uh, in younger adults. So what does it mean for older uh, adult drinkers? It means that moderate levels of consumption can actually be risky. We're talking moderate. We're not to, let's forget about the people who are drinking 10 or 15 drinks a day or having a six-pack. You know, we'll set those folks up. We're talking about moderate drinking, and we'll define that. There are more consequences uh, from, uh, from maintaining regular moderate consumption. Uh, and uh, increasing uh, amounts can quickly result in adverse consequences, where it may take longer for a, um, a younger person, it, a shift in kind of amount can quickly kind of take off and create problems. So there have been lots of studies and lots of panels that have gotten together to think about what do we recommend to older adults in terms of consumption. Uh, and uh, if you haven't heard about this before, you may be surprised, but that the recommended drinking limit is no more than one drink per day on average for an older man and less than one drink per day on average for an older woman. Anything above that we call at-risk drinking. Now, some people find real problems with that. Uh, you know, I've had people that have said, gosh, you know, so I know lots of older people, older men who have a couple of drinks a day or women who have, uh, you know, a, a something at bedtime and something at dinner, and we all know those people. We're talking on average that the data shows that anything more than this is associated with some downstream adverse, uh, uh, downstream adverse consequences. And certainly binge drinking, which we define as drinking four or more drinks during any single occasion uh, for men, or three or more drinks on any single occasion for women. Um, and I think this starts probably more in the 50s and early 60s when you start to get more sensitive. I don't know about you, but uh, all it takes me is a, a glass and a half of wine and I'm, I'm kind of falling asleep. And that certainly wasn't the case when I was younger. Um, so, uh, uh, and that's a small amount of alcohol. And maybe I'm just more sensitive than most people, but, uh, but uh, I certainly have personally experienced differences in my tolerance. And I'm sure that's due to all sorts of physiological changes that happen with, uh, with getting older. So if you think about the types of things that are downstream problems with, uh, with alcohol use, uh, regular, uh, again, use that's a little more than what we, than what we just described as limits, that uh, one or more drink per day, uh, you can have a number of medical problems, gastritis, ulcers, uh, other uh, problems, hepatic or liver problems. Two or more drinks a day, uh, uh, depression tends to be more frequent. Uh, 
uh, even cancer, memory problems, falls, tends to absolutely go up with two or more drinks. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that absolutely happens with older adults. And then three or more drinks, you can see that there are some significant downstream problems in terms of blood pressure, diabetes, and a whole bunch of, uh, of, uh, of other sorts of uh, disorders and cancer the risk goes up. So how do we understand drinking in older adults? And are there different types of so-called drinkers? Um, and, and the answer is yes. Um, now, if you, look at, um, if you look at a lifetime moderate drinker, it looks something like this. It looks like uh, a bit of an uptick, uh, uptick uh, kind of around uh, high school and college years, um, and a little bit of a downslope, and then regular moderate, moderate drinking uh, thereafter. And then there's the so-called early onset drinker. And this is somebody who started getting into trouble uh, in their teens or early 20s. And uh, this person is the type of individual who uh, had, down, had consequences, a lot, losing job, DWIs, problems with, uh, with uh, relationships. Uh, uh, you know, these are the individuals who you think about as lifetime, quote unquote, alcoholics, people who have had a significant long-term challenge with alcohol. So what about older people who have this early onset pattern? Who are they? Um, and, and are there many of those? Um, well, people who have had a long lifetime problem with alcohol are more likely to be men, two-thirds. Men are much more likely to have this long problem. And then they've got lots of stuff that's come with that. Uh, more likely to have behavioral problems, physical problems, medical problems, numerous attempts at going into detox or into treatment uh, and different sorts of treatments. They tend to have pretty much burned out and alienated their family. They've, they've you know, hit bottom, so-called. They've been in and out of AA. Uh, they've uh, had uh, significant consequences in their life. And, and their personality characteristics, even when they're older, are kind of like younger people. You know, a lot of quote-unquote denial, um, a lot of uh, uh, in and out problems with respect to mood swings, and for some people it's getting aggressive or violent or, or abusive or alternatively um, disinhibited. So people who are older, who have lifetime alcohol use, look a lot like people who are younger in terms of these largely men who have a persistent um, alcohol dependence and abuse. Now, I guess the good and bad part of this is this is not that frequent because you know what, you just can't sustain this for most people into, into your 70s and 80s. Most of these individuals die. They die from car accidents, they die from violence, they die from medical withdrawal symptoms, they die from liver failure, they die from bad stuff happening because the body just can't be punished like this into late life that commonly. So they're definitely older adults, or in and out of detox, um, but many of them, um, but they're not that frequent. And again, uh, you know, uh, the uh, be able to sustain this is hard. Now, then there's the late onset problem drinker. This is somebody who started out with moderate drinking. You can see on the slope there a little uptick uh, when they were younger, and then they were cruising along through middle age, and then in late life they suddenly took off. So, who are these people? Well. Exactly opposite men, two-thirds tend to be women, more likely to be women. And the problem drinking tend to, be, tend to follow a life event which was stressful and traumatic and difficult. And that may be widowhood, losing spouse, 
may be some significant physical impairment, having had a stroke or losing vision, losing one, one of the things that you really uh, treasure in terms of your functioning. Or somebody who's just generally had an erosion of social support, who's lost people around them that have been supportive to them, maybe death of friends that have died off, or simply a move that was not really well thought out. Sometimes we see this, and I'm sure you're familiar with people who think they're moving to Florida is wonderful or moving up here is wonderful, and they lose their social network and then start to use other ways of coping. Um, and uh, they, tend to people, they tend to be people that did have a pretty good life beforehand compared to the early onset drinkers who really had crashed and burned a lot of their relationships and jobs and things like that. They, they, these individuals tend to have positive experience. Now the good, good news is, is they remember exactly what it was like to be doing better because they were doing better. They were doing fine through middle age. So they're, they're much more likely to believe the treatment can help. Where the, late on, the, uh, the early onset drinkers have been through the, 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 the cycle of going in and out, they, they've kind of burned out and they're skeptical appropriately and everyone around them is skeptical. These individuals are totally, uh, uh, you know, not only uh, likely to believe that they can actually find a way back, but absolutely very responsive to treatment. So the late onset drinker, really important target in terms of a problem drinker. So we also know that older adults who drink um, are more likely to have what we call dual diagnosis or co-occurring other uh, mental uh, disorders. So um, concurrent alcohol use and depression is pretty common. And in fact, uh, when we did a review of the literature on what's called dual diagnosis in elderly people and wrote a paper on this years ago, um, when people talk about dual diagnosis in younger people, they're often talking about alcohol and drug use and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and major mental illness. In older adults, it's depression. And depression is, and alcohol go hand in hand, much more com even more commonly in older adults for a reason we don't understand than younger people. Uh, and that um, it usually isn't dependence, and this is really important. Just because somebody doesn't have withdrawal, doesn't have tremors, doesn't have shakes, doesn't have the types of things you think about in terms of alcohol dependence in young adults, doesn't mean that at-risk drinking isn't important. And it's more likely you're going to have, again, people who have potential, um, potentially <coughs> problematic drinking that isn't associated with frank dependence, and so that's an important point. So um, we know that older adults who, uh, who drink and have had, who have had a lifetime diagnosis of alcohol abuse are, are three times more likely to develop a mental disorder of some sort. And, and these include uh, depression, the most common, but cognitive uh, loss, the people who are uh, significant drinkers are more uh, likely to have um, uh, cognitive impairment disorders um, and certainly anxiety disorders. So again, they go hand in hand and it's important to think about both of those. Um, you probably know that older adults have the highest suicide rate of any group and that the greatest, highest risk group are Caucasian men, white men, who are recently widowed or divorced, who are retired or have lost their jobs, who um, are living alone, who have a medical problem, chronic medical problems, and who are drinking, and who have access to a firearm. That person is very high risk. Um, if they're talking about 
thinking about ending their life. They, everything aligns, and drinking and a firearm in the house is the major kind of uh, last uh, straw that uh, is associated with uh, a, a, a successful attempt. So this is that story about suicide. Um, again, widowhood, separated, divorced, and older men, older white men predominantly. And the, uh, again, the number one cause of mortality in older adults is, uh, is self-inflicted gunshot um, wound. In younger people, it's, more, it's, it's overdose um, and, uh, and other sorts of approaches. But in, but in older adults, it tends to be firearms. So it's important to, if you've got somebody you're worried about, talk to the family about at least temporarily removing that gun, if you can, without getting into trouble with, I don't know, whoever it is that doesn't want that to have happen for people who are at risk. Um, so screening approaches. Um, there are lots of different ways to think about um, alcohol use disorders. Now, for the more at risk individuals, this is one mnemonic, which I don't know whether it's that helpful because the, there's a pretty large uh, group of things that are present, but certainly a new onset of a seizure disorder in somebody is worth worrying about new falls, injuries, um, muscle wasting somebody who's losing weight. Um, it could be due to some sort of uh, malignancy or due to some malabsorption syndrome or some sort of geriatric syndrome, but it also may be that that person is drinking. And uh, you know, where's, where's a good place to look for a bottle of alcohol uh, in an older person's house where you don't see it in the kitchen? Yeah, the, yeah that's great, the tank topper. Uh, yeah, so look in the toilet, and I'm not saying you should be rooting around in people's toilets, but uh, have a family member look in the tank topper. Look for those bottles in the recycling bin that, uh, gee, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, and actually people who are, are uh, individuals who, uh, uh, you know, are administrators in senior housing projects, you know, do sometimes detect that somebody's in trouble simply by what's showing up in the recycling bin. It really can be a, a helpful uh, way of uh, identifying people that are having trouble. Um, poor hygiene, self-neglect. So if somebody, again, is, uh, has been referred to the Bureau of Elderly Adult Services or Protective Services because of neglect, alcohol is high on the list for something to worry about. Uh, it could be the person's dement having a progressive dementia. It could be that they're poor and don't have access to, to appropriate nutrition. But it could be that they're choosing to drink instead certainly liver function abnormalities, and then all of these emotional, mental health symptoms. Um, uh, before you assume that the person should be placed on an antidepressant or go into psychotherapy, ask, you know, gee, to, uh, do, do, you, um, do, you have a, do you drink at all? Do you have a glass of, of wine or beer or anything else that you drink on a regular basis? You know, to get at quantity frequency is a really important question. Now, one instrument that has been used is the Michigan, Alco Michigan Alcohol uh, Screening Test for Geriatrics, which is one measure that, um, uh, that, uh, that is available to ask to, to use. But before you even go there, simply asking uh, quantity frequency in a very objective way. Do you, uh, do you uh, have a drink of, do, do you drink at all? Do you have a drink of alcohol uh, or you know, wine or beer at any time? Well, how many times a week? And, and how many do you tend to drink at any one time? 
you know, not in a judgmental way, but in an objective way. Um, and then if they, somebody does drink, then you can start to use some of these other instruments. Michigan, Michigan Alcohol Screening Test for Geriatrics is helpful because of its simple language um, and it's relatively short, doesn't have a gender bias. If you learned to use the cage for younger people, this, uh, do, you, do you need to cut down? Do you get angry because of people are criticizing? Are you guilty uh, because of uh, feeling, feelings of guilt? And do you uh, need an eye opener to get up in the morning? Not helpful in older adults. Don't use it. Why? Because people who are older aren't necessarily alcohol dependent. They're not drinking the eye opener. They're having the, uh, the, the, the schnapps uh, or whatever, you know, at, uh, before they go off to, uh, to, their, uh, to their card game or whatever. Um, and, uh, and they haven't been necessarily trying to cut down because they, don't have, they haven't been in the addiction cycle of, of losing their driver's license. Or, 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 and they're not necessarily feeling guilty because it's, you know, it's a couple of drinks. So the cage, the, uh, the, 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 uh, what you learn to use in younger people that's pretty good for a question is not helpful in older adults. So start with quantity, frequency, and then if you want to use an instrument, you know, think about the Michigan alcohol screening test that's actually available on the web. So we believe that every person over 60 should be screened for alcohol as part of a physical examination. Just ask, quantity, frequency, and then think about rescreening thereafter if people look like they're having any of these symptoms or problems that we described, falls, change in cognitive status, new medical problems. Ask direct questions. Uh, preface the question with a link to medical conditions. So, Instead of kind of saying, you know, do you, ha do you have problems with drinking? Of course you don't say <laughs> Gee, you know, um, Mrs. Smith, you know, you're on, as you know, you're on some medications uh, for your blood pressure and for your uh, heart disease. And sometimes these can interact with, uh, with alcohol. Do you, do you ever have a drink of alcohol? Is that something that you do on a regular basis? Uh, if so, well, you know, how many drinks do you have at any one sitting and how often do you drink? Because I want to make sure you're, you're drinking safely. You know, that's very different than suggesting there's a problem. And it's totally legitimate because, as we just said, medical problems and medications, invariably the interactions are large and, and, and prevalent. So, so it's, it's an expression of, of caring and of appropriate health care to ask that question, particularly people who are on medications. And almost everybody is who's older at some point. So when we think about interventions, what we think about is, um, is uh, a, a large group to kind of focus on, but the, that little peak at the top of the pyramid is very small. Severe dependence is small. So there's a lot of thought put into kind of do we have detox units for older adults? Do we have ways of kind of providing uh, inpatient? You know, if you really want to make a difference in population health, have something available for those folks. Don't worry about the people in the middle. Worry about the people who are at risk and problem drinkers, because that's where all the people are. And that's where you can make a big change, where the hope is largest, uh, and, and for which the, uh, the impact and prevalence is high. Now, the good news is, is that uh, early on, a little education can be helpful, but uh, brief advice can make a big difference. There have been studies that have been done that simply have looked at whether or not the primary care physician says, gee, uh, Gee, Steve, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're now on a number of different medications that might interact with alcohol. Um, it'd be a great idea for you to cut down, really limit your drinking. You know, I, it's okay to have a glass of wine, you know, every now and then, but 
you know, I really strongly recommend that you uh, that you, you know, not drink, not have a drink every night before you, uh, have, you know, after you have dinner or whatever, or, or with dinner. That alone makes a big difference. It's been shown. Just a simple that that took what a minute, you know. And then brief interventions we'll talk about uh, are are effective across the spectrum. So what do we know? We know that brief interventions in older adults. Uh, can reduce alcohol use uh, in studies with a 12-month follow-up quite effectively. And that motivational enhancement can be effective, and this approach is, is acceptable to older adults and can be done in primary care, can be done in home settings, can be done by social workers, by psychologists, by physicians, by lots of different people. And brief alcohol interventions appear to reduce alcohol-related harm. So people who are at risk decrease harm. Um, and it also is associated with lower use of emergency rooms. So, so what is a brief alcohol intervention? What has been developed and has been tested in randomized trials um, consists of something, it's time limited. So first of all, it's not in, uh, incessant or open-ended kind of treatment. It can be, any, it can be as short as five minutes uh, to uh, as many as five sessions, five or six sessions. And its goals are to facilitate kind of getting a person engaged and reducing alcohol consumption. It doesn't start with the assumption of abstinence. This is one big divergence. So um, as you know, with people who are alcohol dependent, you know, AA is really clear about saying even, you know, one drop is uh, not enough and two drops or whatever is, too, I don't know how that acronym goes, people who, uh, you know, but, but even a little bit of exposure to alcohol is dangerous. Well, we think that, uh, that you can help people just by cutting down. Um, and it depends on screening techniques uh, and, uh, and it works. Now, what is the way that it uh, works? Is it has several components, it, and, and we'll make these slides, by the way, available uh, uh, you know, on, the, on the web. So screening is one component, asking people, giving feedback about the extent to which your consumption is normal, quote unquote, or a little higher in your age group. Then helping people to find motivation for change. What is the motivational thing that that person, that individual cares about? Not what you care about, what do they care about? It may not be their liver function tests. That's probably not what they think about all the time. Strategies for change, how do you help people to strategically think about? Then come up with a behavioral contract and then doing follow-up. So who can do these sorts of things? Physicians, nurses, again, anybody almost can do these brief interventions. So when you think about motivational interviewing, when you think about using this sort of approach, much of the approach is around giving feedback and helping the person to have responsibility, providing thoughtful advice, giving people, think about a menu of choices, being empathic, and, and encouraging that person to be self-sufficient in what they do around, uh, around their goals. So, you know, this is different than the confrontational approach that is used for alcohol dependence in young adults. So if you think about AA, you think about the, 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 the approach that's used that's, that can be highly successful for younger people. It tends to be associated with, you know, I'm an alcoholic, good morning, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, I'm in recovery every day. Um, um, I, uh, I have a disease, it's called alcoholism, uh, and I know that, 
that uh, that when I, you know, when I'm, well, actually, I'm doing better now. I don't think I need to come to the meeting anymore. Steve, you're in denial. You know, you're in denial. This has crashed and burned your family. You are an alcoholic. You'll always be an alcoholic. What I'm hearing is, is denial, because I've been there, you know. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, no, no, I'm really, you know, I, I don't think I'm really an alcoholic. I'm, you're wrong, you know, you're, you're full of it, you know, this confrontation and, and denial and stuff. And then, and then uh, the, the saying, you gotta do the, you gotta do A, B, C, and D. You know, you, you know, I can't do it for you, but these are the things you gotta do. I've been there, this is what you gotta do. That's, again, kind of, if, and if you haven't been to an A meeting, uh, please go at some point. It really is really important to learn about um, what has been a really effective approach. Predominantly for younger people and for older people who are clearly dependent and addictive. But don't use labels. Don't call older people alcoholics when they have at-risk drinking. It's the, it's the, it, or using labels of any kind can uh, alienate that person and really unhelpful. Personal choice is really important in encouraging people to, to, to recognize that they, they can make a difference on their own. And, and then, it's all about eliciting to, to that individual concerns or evidence that they find uh, compelling for why they might be having problems. And um, meeting resistance with reflection. Hmm, that's interesting, really? So let me give you a, a one-minute motivational interviewing um, intervention. So, so, um, so, you're telling me, Mrs. Smith, uh, tell me what it is that's important to you uh, in your life right now. I'd really like to know, because I'm, I'm uh, you know, here to be helpful to you. Well, I, I, um, I'm really interested. I, I, the thing I'm really hoping to do is to, to go see my, daughter, my granddaughter and her wedding. Uh, and, uh, and I really enjoy the time I, I, I spend with some of my friends. Well, do you also, is, is another thing that's important to you is to live independently, you know, as long as you can in your home? And, oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. That's always one you can always pull out of your pocket. So, oh, yeah, I definitely want to live in my home as long as possible. So I don't want to end up in one of those nursing homes. Okay, great. So, so tell me, um, you know, uh, tell me about some of your health problems. Uh, you know, so I heard earlier you've got congestive heart failure, you've got diabetes. Yes, you're on lots of medications? Oh, yeah. And uh, tell me, you know, sometimes uh, alcohol can complicate or interact sometimes with medication. Do you drink at all? Oh yeah, I, uh, I have a couple of drinks every night. Okay, all right, great. And uh, do you ever drink more than that? I, oh, sometimes I have, you know, another, you know, nightcap or whatever, okay, so. Well, let me, let me help you think a little bit about that because do you know that actually drinking uh, even more than one drink a day for a woman is associated with lots of complications, including more likely to fall, more likely to have problems with memory and lots of interactions with your medications. Did you know that? Well, I've kind of heard that. Well, it's really important because I really care about how you're doing and, uh, and uh, you are telling me that the thing that you most care about is being independent in your home as long as possible and showing up at your granddaughter's wedding. And what we know is, is that people who drink even two drinks or more a day who are women are more likely to fall, end up in nursing homes and not make it to their daughter's weddings and not end up being independent in their home all the time. It's kind of interesting how those two things are not exactly aligned. Do you ever wonder about whether or not it might be helpful to think about that or to, to make a change? Uh, because uh, you could be actually jeopardizing some of the things you care about. Are there things that, that drinking helps you with? Uh, well, actually, I, I actually sleep better. Well, you may want to know that actually 
Alcohol is a lousy sleep medication. You wake up with, do you wake up at about three hours after? Oh yeah, I do. Well, that may be the alcohol. So what do you think? Would you be willing to, instead of having two or three drinks, would you be willing to kind of just have maybe a drink you know, several times a week or maybe just on weekends? Would you do that experiment with me? Can we agree on that? And we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks or three weeks and see how you're doing. How long did that take? Five minutes? Literally did that with a very prominent individual in the community who was, um, who was seeing his wife for Alzheimer's and he was getting depressed and, and uh, having a tough time and he was drinking, you know, uh, three drinks or so and then uh, hanging out, you know, sitting in the parlor and worried about his wife and I and he was worried that his memory was getting bad. And I said, you know, I'd love, you know, we talked, we went through this whole routine. And I said, you know, I'd like to try an experiment with you. Would you be willing to go along with me? I think your memory would be clearer if instead of drinking, uh, you um, took, your, took your wife for a walk around the block. Let's do that. Let's do that for like a month. And a month later, I saw him. I said, gee, you know, I haven't been feeling as down. And, uh, and uh, you just tested my memory, and I actually did better, didn't I? Yep. And that was it. That, that was it. He, he stopped drinking and he thanked me for that, you know, that he really didn't realize it was an association. So identify those future goals. What's important to you as a person? Not what's important to me as a medical practitioner, but what do you care about? What are your health habits? Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you take your medications regularly? What's a standard drink? How much are you drinking? And uh, again, a, a glass of wine this big is not a standard drink. Types of older drinkers, you know, there are people who drink, uh, uh, you, don't, you, you don't have to be an alcoholic, quote unquote, to be in trouble with alcohol. Even, believe it or not, a couple of drinks can be a problem for older people. Consequences, falls, confusion, medical drug-drug interactions. Reasons to quit, to cut down, you'll be healthier, you'll be clearer in your thinking, you'll meet some of your goals that you really want to. You're gonna have a better likelihood of living independently and not falling down and cracking. You know, if people fall down and break their hip, they end up in nursing homes. Sometimes they never come home. I don't want that to happen to you. Let's, can we talk about cutting back on your alcohol? Coming up with an agreement, uh, and then where are those situations in which you're at risk? Oh, holiday parties, okay, what can you do? Is there someone you like to hang with who happens to be a teetotaler so you don't get into that trouble? Or, or when you're feeling lonely, what about calling your daughter or calling your friend as opposed to having that second drink? Um, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. So again, there are 12 step groups for older adults. Make sure, for people who are really dependent, make sure you, that they're geriatric, older, adult friendly. The worst thing you can do is send somebody who's older, who's a, an older woman, for example, who's having a lot of problems with alcohol, to an AA group or an NA group where war stories are told about all sorts of sexual exploits and shooting up and snorting and this and that. That person will never go back. So. Uh, there are groups that are so there are groups that exist that are really good, but they need to be elder friendly, elder sensitive. Now, treatment works. Um, that uh, actually the success rate is as high as sixty percent for at-risk drinking. It's better than treatments for almost any other medical geriatric uh, condition, uh, and it's also something that uh, accrues uh, cost benefits. Um, also think about not only how to help that person in that brief alcohol intervention or unmotivated, but think about patching in what they are missing that is causing them to be perhaps using alcohol as an alternative to social support. 
you know, the, the biggest and perhaps the worst and most prevalent uh, disease in older adults is probably loneliness and isolation, right? And so how do you help people with that that are otherwise sitting up in that fourth floor of the senior housing setting, you know, drinking as opposed to because they don't have anyone to spend time with. So how do we do that? How do we come up with senior companions or people or inviting people or helping that person to get to their religious Sunday event that they used to go to but don't can't drive anymore? How do we do that? How do we get people engaged? Socialization um, and helping people to rebuild their social networks. We know that social networks are so important in older adults, right? And loss of those are among the things that really are most likely to precipitate some of these at-risk drinking or at-risk medication use uh, problems. So uh, that's, that's it for my kind of quick overview. I'm happy to uh, take any questions in the last few minutes. Yes? Hi, thank you for your presentation. You uh, made a comment that almost everyone um, in uh, geriatric stage of life is on medication. Is that true in um, other countries, or is that uh, uh, an American thing? I don't know. Any of the geriatricians want to comment on that? Uh, Lisa or Margot? I don't know about uh, patterns. Uh, Margot is actually an expert in uh, international uh, health. Uh, so I don't know whether you can comment on geriatric uh, treatment in other countries in terms of the use of polypharmacy or any medication. Um, I would say in, in underdeveloped countries, you're, there's a growth of what we call non-communicable diseases like hypertension and diabetes. So yes, people are on medications for those conditions. But the routine use of pain medications is really, they're not available, even for people who are in severe pain or have cancer diagnoses. So there are definite cultural differences, but certainly the use of intoxicants and alcohol are, I think would be considered fairly um, dependent on the particular country that you're looking at. In developed countries. Oh, in developed countries? Yeah, I think the, the if you go to like, say Japan or Western Europe, they have similar prescribing patterns to what we have in America. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Marco. Other questions? Very good, okay, well we're joined on time for uh